All right, everybody, we're here talking about the awesome Chick-fil-A drive-through experience. No, just kidding. We're going to do some quick introductions, and thank you for being in the back of our green room before we start the show. This is where we're going to get a little insight of what everyone's doing. Martin, tell us where you're calling in from, what you're going to talk about today, uh, and then we'll get to Mary and Scott as well. So go ahead. Listen, I'm right now in Switzerland, in Zurich, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the lack of common sense in our world, and there's a lot of stuff going on which is related to that topic. Awesome. That's very cool. Mary, what about you? Uh, I'm calling in from San Mateo, California, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the future of innovation, how we uh, actually get things to scale. Very, very cool. All right. And Scott, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Uh, Delray Beach, Florida, and about some of the uh, biggest uh, trends and influences coming out of, uh, hopefully coming out of the pandemic. Very, very cool. You can tell now that today's theme is about the futures, and we're going to start talking about this. The show is sponsored by Robots and Pencils, but more importantly, let's start the countdown. Elle, all yours. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on uh, Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and later this year, he's coming out with his new book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Ray is also a regular television business and technology weekly news contributor. You can see him on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. He's also a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar. You've seen him on Twitter, CEO, CMO, CIOs, executives follow him. He speaks a lot at executive conferences, facilitates events, and of course, you see him on business TV, and he's an author himself. But it's not about us. It's about the awesome guests we have, and today's our Futures Editions, and we're going to kick this off with one and only. Who do we have, Vala? All right. Our first guest is Scott Galloway, author of Post-Corona, From Crisis to Opportunity. Scott's a professor of marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business. He was named one of the world's 50 best business school professors. Professor Galloway is a New York Times bestselling author of The Four, great book, uh, The Algebra of Happiness. And I'm a double E undergraduate in gra graduate school, and I took all the math courses in the world. But these are the equations I needed to learn so one of my favorite books, and of course, the book we're going to be talking about today, post-corona opportunities that are ahead of us, hopefully after we get successfully through the pandemic. Professor Galloway is a serial entrepreneur. He's founded nine companies, including L2, Red Envelope, Profit, and Section 4, his latest company, which we're going to talk about during this show. He is the host of Professor G Show podcast and co-host of Pivot Cost podcast with Kara Switcher. He's a must-follow on Twitter at Prof Galloway, P-R-O-F-G-A-L-L-O-W-A-Y. Uh, welcome, Professor Galloway, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Vala. Thanks, Ryan. Hey, thanks for being on the show. And more importantly, you've been talking about the pandemic. Is, it's not a change agent. It's more of an accelerant of trends that were already well underway in business, culture, and society. But what are the predominant trends that the pandemic has amplified? And I think it's a great, you know, you, you've been talking about this for quite some time, but I think people really don't understand that difference between what's been accelerated and what's something that's post-future. 
So go ahead. Sure. So uh, in 2000, e-commerce started getting traction and uh, roughly speaking, every year it's grown one percentage point. And sitting here in March of 2020, we were at 18% of all retail was transacted through digital channels within 18 excuse me, within eight weeks, it jumped to 28%. So we had a decade of acceleration in e-commerce in eight weeks. Uh, home delivery of grocery accelerated six years, working from home accelerated a decade. So there's been some really wonderful trends that have accelerated. There's also been some very negative trends that have accelerated. One out of two young adults between the age of 18 and 30 are now living at home with their parents. We've seen uh, inequality go from uh, dysfunctional to dystopic. We now have one in five households with children are food insecure. So an interesting exercise for any company and any individual is to take the biggest trends in your company and in your life and just take the line out 10 years and ask yourself, are we or am I uh, there now? And how do I reallocate or reconfigure my behavior, capital allocation to this kind of this massive acceleration? Can we can you uh, expand on some actions that we can take to combat these negative trends you just referenced? Oh wow, we're going to need a bigger boat. I, I think that um, <laughs> I think we're going to you know is twenty twenty one going to be a, a better or worse year? And I think the answer is yes, and it's entirely up to us. But I think we're going to have to. Yeah, it's about capital reallocation. Do we need to spend $500 billion on the military? It doesn't appear that tanks are lining up the Canadian or Mexican-American borders, but we spent $7 billion on the CDC. Uh, we had one individual uh, increase his wealth by the GDP of Hungary in the pandemic, and yet 40% of the people who uh, make less than $40,000 a year have had job interruption. And again, we have tremendous you know, we have people have to put themselves in harm's way because they have so uh, so little money. So do we, uh, a big question is, what do we want to leave behind? Emissions have gone down tremendously. Have we decided we want to leave a certain amount of emissions behind? We've also seen on the negative side, a dramatic exiting of women, uh, female participation in the labor force. We all thought remote work would be great for women and it ends up it's not. It ends up that we're back to the 80s in terms of female per participation in the labor force. So are we going to need to uh, have some sort of intervention to ensure that women, young women have actually closed the wage gap? It's once they have kids that they dropped 83 cents on the dollar and dual income homes decide that women need to stay at home. So I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, and a crisis is a terrible thing to wait, waste. This is a huge opportunity to rethink uh, our environment. I think on the negative side, I think we fully embrace cronyism. I think bailing out airlines is ridiculous. I think bailing out small businesses is ridiculous. The only way you provide a new generation of entrepreneurs with opportunities is to let the winds of creative destruction gale. And we've decided with these bailouts to throw some loaves of bread and circuses for the poor. But 50 to 70 percent of this stimulus has ended up back in the market, which has exploded the stock market, exploded the, the value of real estate, and who owns 90% by gross dollar volume of stocks and real estate, the top 1%. So I would argue that the wealthy and the shareholder class have played this pandemic like a Stradivarius and just figured out a way to explode their wealth. Yeah, no, we're definitely seeing that kind of uh, change and shift. But let's say you got the magic wand and you're like, you know, a uh, benevolent dictator, benevolent uh, president for one day, what would you do? How would you change this? Where are some of the places we can start? Oh, gosh. Tax policy. Eliminate capital. The two biggest tax deductions are capital gains. Why is the money that money makes more noble than the money that sweat makes? So get rid of capital gains tax deduction. Have it just be one set of income tax, all at 37, 39 percent, similar to the Reagan years. Get rid of 
get rid of the interest rate deduction on mortgages. Who owns homes? Wealthy, older people. Who rents? Younger people. Start taxing endowments at universities that have the GDP of Hungary on their balance sheets but don't want to expand. If they're not expanding their freshman seats faster than population, they're not public servants. They're hedge funds educating the children of their investors. Um, have reverse Social Security. Why on earth are we transferring a trillion dollars a year from young people to older people, the wealthiest generation in history are seniors, US seniors. Why are young people, there used to be five of them for every one they were supporting with social security, now it's two and a half. Shouldn't we flip the strip? Shouldn't we have social security for younger people? Uh, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of uh, uh, tax, economic um, and legislative policy. We should be, I think we should have a Marshall Plan for moms. I think we need to start figuring out a way that women can stay, if women decide to stay at home and propagate the species, which my understanding is fairly important, that we give them opportunities to maintain their professional trajectory or we just pay them to stay at home. Uh, we are losing 50% of low-income kids are falling off the map in, in terms of math and STEM. I think we should tax the shit out of private schools where my kids go to school and reinvest in public schools. So, I mean, I can keep, let's do away with tenure. I mean, I can, I, I mean, I can keep going, but I think there's a variety. There's a ton of opportunity for changes in public policy. I think Vala, cool. we, we've got an open seat in the, for a governor potentially in New York and then one and for a mayor in the city. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I think we've got yeah. a candidate here. What yeah, do you think? No, no, yeah. Well, Bill, <laughs> we'll sorry, Bill, Bill Maher already beat you to it last on Friday when he proposed that Professor Galloway runs run. for governor. You uh, run. <laughs> which by the way, I've never seen Bill Maher clap for a guest answer. Uh, 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 except last week when Professor Galloway was there. Great show, by the Thank way. Um, so, okay, let's stick to education. Let's yep. stick to universities, which you mentioned. Ray and I had the privilege of speaking to the late, great Professor Clay Christensen a few years ago, and he told us point blank he thought 50% of colleges and universities would disappear in the next 10 years. Uh, you just raised uh, about $37 million for your latest company, Section 4, and Section 4 is a platform where you want to create uh, an opportunity to teach millions not just thousands of aspiring professionals and, and, and really position them for the new normal. Uh, some incredible stats, 88% of the students that have already applied, have already applied the learnings from section four within three months of graduating from your courses. In the past 12 months, you've had 10,000 students from 97 countries uh, enroll in section four. More than 33% of the students are C-level uh, you know, as, as, as an executive at Salesforce in the tech sector, I can tell you my company has an unquenchable thirst for training leaders and executives because we, we, the, the, the velocity, the, the speed and direction of change around us is such that, uh, you know, if you're not learning continuously, you're going to fall behind. Why is this so near and dear to you? And are you essentially bringing Clay Christensen's uh, forecast to fruition? You're going to disrupt higher education with companies like Section Four. Oh, well, I can see why you're a chief evangelist, Val. That was better. That was better than I could do. Look, th this is personal for me because the reason I'm sitting here with you and the reason I get to live in Delray Beach is is a I'm talented. I'm not a modest person. And I'm hardworking. But more than anything, the generosity and vision of California taxpayers and Regents University of California let me get a great education for a grand total of $7,000 undergrad at UCLA and graduate school at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. The admissions rate when I applied to UCLA was 60%. This year, it's going to be 9%. Uh, higher education in the U.S. has unfortunately devolved from being the great upward lubricant of unremarkable kids. 
to a CAS system, the enforcer of the CAS system, where we've decided let's raise tuition 1400%, let's not expand freshman seats so we can all be drunk on luxury. And the dean of business schools and schools all over the world stand up and brag that we turned away 90% of our applicants, which is tantamount to the head of a homeless shelter bragging they turned away 90% of the people who showed up last night. We need to massively expand admittance rates and dramatically decrease costs because effectively America, as evidenced by the Gestalt and higher education, has decided our collective goal, our mission, is to take the 1% and turn them into billionaires. And that's not what America is about. America is about taking the bottom 90% and giving them a shot at the top 10%. There are two cohorts now that are welcome at elite universities. One, the children of rich kids, 77 times more likely to get into an elite university if you come from a top 1% income earning household, or what I call the freakishly remarkable. And the reality is 99% of our children are not in the top 1%. So either your father has his name on the side of a building or you have a patent on a pharmaceutical by the time you're 16. America needs to fall back in love with the unremarkable. Our, our job isn't to turn the top 1% into billionaires. Our job is to fall back in love with unremarkables. I'm the child of a single immigrant mother who lived and died as secretary who never made more than $40,000 a year. And I hear this collective scream from kids like me saying, you got yours, boss. I want mine. And unfortunately, every day, every day at universities, we ask ourselves one question. How can we pay ourselves more and be less accountable? Tenured faculty and administrators at colleges have become drunk on luxury. They no longer think they're public service uh, servants. They think they're, they think they're luxury brands. We need to dramatically increase admittance rates and dramatically lower the cost. We need to return higher ed to its rightful position as the upward lubricant of mobility for the unremarkable. You know who doesn't need higher ed? Rich kids. <laughs> They don't need it. They have the network. They have the education. It's the other 99% who aren't getting in that desperately need higher ed. So I think that the, the fists of stone are coming for the biggest chin in history, and that is the drunk, self-aggrandizing arrogance that is higher education in the United States. Wow. Hey, wow. Coming from case. a professor who's been teaching at NYU since 2002, it's remarkable that that's your point of view, and I 1,000% agree with it. He Go can ahead. say that because he has tenure. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> he doesn't have tenure, though. That's, that's reality. But hey, would you recommend sending your kids to college right now? Like, is, is that a path that they should still take? Yeah, unfortunately, it is. It, it, I mean, the reality is that it's still the caste system. In Europe, the caste system was enforced by your family name. Now the caste system in the U.S. is enforced by your college degree, and that is College is still a great plan B. You earn two to three X what non-college attendees uh, uh, earn over their lifetime. A top 20 school, you come out of MIT or Stanford or Caltech and you shoot into the marketplace with incredible trajectories. So mm -hmm. they are still fantastic upper lubricants. It's just unfortunately, we've decided to turn it into uh, a means of segregation, a means of casting. Uh, so look, everybody says, well, they'll lose their brand equity. UCLA was 60% admittance rate when I applied. It's now 9%. And it wasn't a bad brand when I went to school. That That's just, a, a, everybody loves to see this exclusiveness go up and up and up. And here's the problem. We've all said, we've all said, I could never get into the college I went to if I applied now. And we say no. it with glee. We say it with pride. Well, guess what, boss? That means your daughter's not getting in. And so it's uh, in some America is about loving the unremarkable and saying, 
you're unremarkable. I remember I got rejected from UCLA and I applied uh, an appeal and I told them the truth. I said, I'm going to be installing shelving for the rest of my life. If you don't let me in, I was, I was installing shelving. And they said, they called me and they said, you're not qualified, but you're a native son of California. We're going to let you in. And it began an upward trajectory that has never stopped for me. And we need, again, to fall back in love with the unremarkables. Uh, higher education has become, uh, it has become the enforcer of the caste system. It's become morally corrupt. And I, I think that it absolutely needs competitive pressure from well-funded educational institutions. We also need corporations to fall out of love and decide, I'm not gonna just hire from elite universities. Yeah. What Google Certificates is doing is really powerful, saying that they'll give low-cost certification and they will treat that person as if they have a college degree. But at the end of the day, we all think that we that college administrators, and I'm part of the problem, we wrap ourselves in woke speak such that we can be less accountable and offer bullshit courses on ethics and leadership where we have no accountability. And slowly but surely, if they think of ourselves as Hermes or Chanel and not as public servants, it's it's out of control. It couldn't happen to a nicer group of people. While we have you here, I have to um, ask you about predictions, because not only you have an incredible track record of accuracy in terms of your predictions, you actually annually, I saw you at NRF keynote, list your predictions and which came true and which didn't. So you hold yourself accountable for understanding and forecasting what businesses will look like in the future. Some unicorns, startups, what are some remarkable companies we should be, we should be looking at um, based on your understanding? And you mentioned somebody who had great wealth because, well, frankly, he built this company. It was like built for the virus. Uh, you know, some companies have really taken advantage of um, what we've experienced over the last 12 months. Are there startups that we should be looking at uh, technology we should be looking at, uh, sectors that we should be looking at. So I'll just tell you what I'm invested in. And also the fine print here is that I predicted Tesla stock would get cut in half when it was at 50 bucks and it's now at 600 bucks. So I just want to be clear. <laughs> I get it magnificently wrong all the time. So I'll just tell you what I'm investing in. I think there's there's been three huge shifts in our economy in the last 50 years. The first was globalization. The second was digitization, largely the internet. I think we're on the precipice of the third and what, what I would call dispersion. And that is the core central value from a producer or supplier is skipping the traditional supply chain and either removing friction, reducing costs or increasing value. The most obvious example is Wonder Woman 1984 no longer stops for 12 weeks in a theater. So Warner can get 500 million, 700 million for theaters. They just pulse it right into your living room. Yeah. I think there's going to be enormous dispersion across three sectors. The first is healthcare. 17% of GDP, it's the worst retail in America. Healthcare is just retail. Imagine going into a Best Buy. They don't get up to greet you. They pull back a plexiglass window and ask you to fill out paperwork before they'll talk to you about a flat screen. It is ripe for disruption. Every year it gets more expensive. Every year the outcomes go down. We're going to see 3 to $4 trillion leapfrog or disperse away from hospitals and doctor's offices to smart speakers and homes. Remote healthcare, telemedicine is going to boom. The second but, is- Sorry, does that mean Amazon's gonna be the biggest player 10 years from now in healthcare? Unfortunately, I think Amazon, and I predicted this for t t three years ago, I said at DLD that Amazon was gonna be the fastest growing healthcare company in the world. And people laughed at me and the CTO of Amazon said I, I was a comedian, that. but then wouldn't answer any questions about Amazon's plans in healthcare. I was there. Amazon was there. is lining up its tanks at the border, whether it's a device that tracks your pulse rate, knowing your body mass index, the food you order, 
the, the your credit card history, your your monogamous relationship, your zip code. They know all the inputs for actuarial to begin offering not only uh, to take healthcare from a disease driven on your heels to, to onto your toes and make it more health driven. They are going to be the fastest growing healthcare company over a billion dollars in history. You're going to see traditional healthcare industrial complex start to leak billions of dollars of capital to Amazon. That's both a good and a bad thing. The second area of dispersion is my industry, and that is we're going to disperse back uh, beyond the leapfrog, the artificial constraints put on put in place on people by uh, campuses and tenure that's resulted in a $1.7 trillion transfer of wealth from middle class households to administrators and endowments. There's enormous opportunity in ed tech. And then the third is what I loosely call the dispersion of headquarters. Commercial real estate in the United States is a $12 trillion industry, 20 to 30% destruction in gross demand for office space. That's three to $4 trillion in stakeholder value that's going to disperse from headquarters to homes. So anything in remote, sub-zero, restoration hardware, William Sonoma just hit an all-time high, lumber prices, anything that helps that uh, around the home or makes activities in the home. Peloton is a dispersion of gyms to the home. Uh, Zoom is a dispersion of headquarters to the home. So dispersion around healthcare, ed tech, and then anything remote in the home, I think are the three areas you want to put your financial and human capital into. And that's where I'm investing most of my capital in the private markets. Brilliant. Brilliant. Wow. This is great. Scott, we could be with you for hours. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Thank you. Scott Galloway, author of Post Corona from Crisis to Opportunity. You can follow him on Twitter at P R O F G A L L O W A Y. Thank you so much for being here on Disrupt TV. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you, sir. That was great. Wow. <laughs> so as a side note, he probably doesn't know, but I used to own the redenvelope.com domain name, but I'll have that story with him later. <laughs> so something fun to laugh about uh, from the 2000s. But we've got an awesome next guest. Who do we have? You stole the words from my mouth. Awesome. Next guest, Mary Hamilton, Managing Director at Accenture. Uh, she's uh, North America, Latin America lead for Accenture Technology Innovation. In her role, Mary leads Accenture Labs, which is dedicated to R&D organization for Accenture, Accenture Ventures, which bridges clients and ecosystem partners, including incubators and accelerators, Accenture Technology Incubation Group, Accenture's Liquid Studios. So lots of responsibilities. I don't know how you do that in 24 hour. You must have an amazing team. Uh, across her uh, role leading technology innovation, Mary drives an agenda of client co-innovation, establishing ongoing relationships with leading companies, I'm proud to say Salesforce is one of them, across industries to conduct joint R&D, shape open innovation, incubate rapidly emerging technologies. Outside of Accenture, Mary is on the board of directors for nonprofit organization, Women Who Code, and is passionate about diversity and inclusion, especially in technology. You can follow Mary on Twitter at MaryQ-C-O-N-T-R-A-R-Y, MaryQ-Contrary. Welcome, Mary, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hey, wonderful to have you here. And more importantly, you've been at the forefront for innovation everywhere, uh, especially with Accenture and Accenture's clients and, of course, um, some of the startups and incubation ideas that are out there. So you cover a lot of areas. Can you talk about, you know, what's hot and what are you looking after these days? Yeah. And uh, my, my new so I used to be I've spent many, many years in our Accenture labs. Um, you know, running our research and development, especially around kind of the human experience side of things. Um, but as we've been 
sort of shifting our business model, we put together all these different innovation functions, which I'm so excited about, but it is a mouthful as an introduction to <laughs> 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 all the things that, that we've uh, we've got going from the open innovation and ventures to labs to you know liquid studios, rapid prototyping. Um, but I think it speaks to the shift that we're trying to make in innovation. So, you know, I, I, I love uh, where Scott was going with, you know, all the coronavirus trends. And I think even in how we're innovating and how we're thinking about driving more successful innovation, that's been disrupted, obviously. I mean, the, the one thing that I will say, I mean, we're on the one year anniversary of COVID, right? And what, if, if nothing else, what it's told us about scaling new ideas is that under pressure, we can and absolutely will scale really amazing innovative ideas, right? Innovative concepts. Um, but before that, you know, I think there's there's been this challenge of, you know, lots of ideas, people, you know, you know, I've got a prototyping studio, we could do lots of prototyping, but how many of those ideas really get into scale, get into business impact, right? You know, I'm working with some of the largest clients in the world and getting those things over the chasm is probably the hardest thing that we have to do. And what I love about the trend we're seeing now is that we know we can do it now. And so that sort of crystallizes, okay, what have we learned from that? And how are we gonna apply that to innovation today? You know, I have to always remind myself that, uh, that you guys are over 500,000 employees because every time I interact and collaborate with Accenture leaders, innovators, it feels like I'm working with a startup. There's a sense of urgency. There's pragmatic optimism, uh, you know, and there's just um, a get things done attitude, yep. <laughs> which, you know, it's, 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 so it's amazing attribute to your leadership and your culture. Um, you know, you've talked about this in your annual technology vision report that when we talk about COVID and what we experienced in 2020, there was a compression of decade of cultural and digital transformation that we witnessed in, in less than a year. And you also mentioned that companies that partner with you who, who have strong digital core competencies uh, and can innovate fast uh, and bring products and services are growing five times more than the laggards. And that used to be two times more only in 2015 to 18 yep. period. So you saw 2X plus growth yep. in such a short time. So. You know, as someone who's responsible for innovation and inventing and just living on the edge, what are some of the lessons uh, your team has learned and applied uh, uh, due to the pandemic and this 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 new norm that we're all a part of, uh, knowing that in order for Accenture or any company to stay relevant, you have to show value quickly. Yeah. And that's exactly what Accenture is doing today. Yeah. And there's that, that growing gap between the laggards and the leaders and you know, and, and where are the leapfroggers coming in, right? And, and you know, I, I think, um, and so a couple lessons that I, I would say we've taken away and, and we're starting to frame in how we do innovation with our clients. And I'll give you a couple examples of what we're doing. Um, I'd say one is uh, a shift from being a project-focused mindset mm -hmm. to a product-focused mindset. And so, you know, I love that you mentioned our, you know, our culture at Accenture, you know, it's, it's like working with startups. Uh, and I, I think amplifying that is so important. Um, and just as a side note, when I started, we had 35,000 people. Now we're at 500,000. Wow. And the culture, <laughs> the core culture 
hasn't changed that much. I mean, there's a lot that's changed. There's always oh, sure. change, but the core culture of that collaboration and that startup, get it done mental hasn't changed. Um, but, but I think it's amplifying that and making that shift from thinking about, okay, here's a project. What are we going to go build to really saying, all right, let's act like we're a startup, right? Let, let's act like, you know, the pandemic pressure is on. If we're coming up with an idea, you know, three, three big things, right? Is it, commercially viable, right? Or is, you know, is this going to work in a business standpoint? Is it technically feasible? Right. And I think, you know, as a technologist, that's always the first thing I think about, well, can we, you know, yeah. can technology do it? How do we accelerate that? Uh, but, but you got to have that commercial viability too. And then is it lovable, right? Are, are people going to want it? Um, and, and when you take a shift from project to product mindset, uh, you start to be, more critical of all three components of that and saying, we're not going to start this thing because it's not going to hit the scale, right? It's not, it's not going to hit scale. It's not going to jump the gap. Uh, we need to be more data-driven. We need to be able to rapidly pivot. Um, and so how do we jump in and just do things faster? And so um, I'll, I'll give an example of kind of the old and the new way of doing it. You know, in the old way, we set up an innovation function of the client and we were gathering ideas, right? you know, doing some sorting of the ideas. And there was a big spreadsheet of a hundred wonderful ideas. And we said, let's, let's try a different approach. So we took those ideas, prioritized, ranked them, put that prod product mindset lens on it, started a business in two weeks, launched a product. Wow. Got insights, wow. circled back. Now, obviously that's not the final point, but got a bunch of customer insights on, well, what do the customers really care about in this launch? Right. Or, uh, you know, hey, we've got a theory instead of, you know, building some prototype, let's go start a business, right? Let's go test that theory with the market, you know, and really, again, kind of play like startups and move really, really fast. And so that's one piece of it. And then the other piece that goes with it is, you know, it comes straight from our vision, the stacking strategically to be able to do that. We've got to start making the, the technology shifts you know, cloud, right? You know, and that's our whole investment around cloud first is getting to that point where, um, you know, we have the big the big companies that are really acting in a cloud native way are able to move like startups. We're we're seeing that more and more, and I and I think that's really another critical piece of that that mindset sh mindset shift. But this is not just a, I mean, a startup. I mean, you're talking about partnerships, almost joint venture models here. Um, it's it's yep. like really deep collaborations deep with clients. Yeah. This isn't just like, oh, let's come in and build them a bunch of hours. I mean, that that's this right. is very, very different, right? And and I think people's perception on on services firms isn't like this. They they don't realize they can get this kind of deep insight. And uh, this, this is kind of one of the big things. But you're also looking at some very interesting areas uh, in terms of innovation. And one of the things that really stuck out in the Accenture Labs page, I was looking at this uh, earlier this year, was neuromorphic computing. Uh, let's start with what that is and explain what that is to people, because uh, it's it's a pretty deep view of like where things are headed. And it's yeah. like almost every organization should be thinking about this. Yes, uh, absolutely. And it's... Um... So this is kind of in the vein of we, we've got a new area of research called future tech. Uh, and it's looking at things like brain inspired compute. You know, so how do we take inspiration for how, from how the brain works and how uh, neurons connect um, things like smart materials. So, you know, topics that maybe you wouldn't expect Accenture to be part of. Um, and I have to give a, a little brief side note, um, you know, smart materials. My degree was from MIT in, material science. 
Ah, and I came, came into Accenture, knew not much. You know, I've learned a lot about technology over the years. I was so excited when we're, we're getting into an area that I actually have a little expertise in. <laughs> Um, anyway, back to neuromorphic. Um, so, so neuromorphic, I think some of the benefits, so it's, so it's really um, kind of brain inspired computing. Um, and we've partnered up with Intel with their low heat chip um, to, to try out new applications, right? And figure out where in the market is this going to be applicable. And the, the things that you should know about neuromorphic, how and where it's differentiated from uh, traditional compute power today it's significantly lower power, right? So it's a thousand times more energy efficient. Wow. And I'll give you some examples of where that, that plays in. Uh, very low latency. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that we learned that, that I think is really nuanced about it is it really allows for continuous learning at the edge, right? So you don't have to have the algorithm, you know, back in the cloud, uh, you know, it, it's actually learning at the edge. Um, and then the other piece that's interesting is it's, um, really helpful from a privacy protecting standpoint. Mm -hmm. So if we're doing video or audio recognition, we're not doing the full camera feed where you're capturing video of people, right? We're, we're doing it in a much more privacy protecting way. And so I think there's just a ton of applications um, that we're looking at. We've started, uh, for example, with kind of an end to end sound classification solution. Um, and that's, you know, like, how do we optimize thing, optimize it for things like detecting falls, home intrusions, um, you know, mechanical failures of industrial equip, equip, industrial equipment. Uh, and I think that those are going to be um, great examples of where, where this with, with the low power is going to be really, uh, really beneficial. So, uh, you know, a, a key example of where we've built out a use case around this is in the automotive space. Hmm. Um, and I don't know if you know much about, you know, automotive, but power is one of the sure. limiting factors um, as you're designing. You know, we'd love to have all the sensors in the world, but limited power. Um, so if we could start to do things on a neuromorphic chip that are, you know, a thousand times more efficient, starts to get interesting. So what if we could do voice recognition while the car is off? Right. Mm -hmm. So you walk up to your car, doesn't have to be on and you can uh, recognize an individual by their voice imprint, unlock the car. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. So this is the spiking neural networks that are in the back end yes. that are simulating the neurons. Right. And, and the exactly. whole point is to keep away from the brittleness. Right. So it starts learning and changing and adapting. Cool. So these yep. are neural nets. These are like mini neural nets. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Another That's another great example. Um, we, we did. Uh, something for a robotic arm on a wheelchair. So if you think about, um, you know, f folks who are limited in their function and need to use a robotic arm, a lot of times those robotic arms are extremely expensive, or if you want one with enough functionality to do things like help you drink from a cup, um, it has to be highly functional. Uh, so those are really, really expensive. And we're starting to explore using more affordable parts with a neuromorphic chip and we've seen a reduction in cost by 10x to be able to do wow. that wow. um they're again more energy efficient so you don't have to charge them as frequently so they're you know more effective in kind of a day-to-day -day environment um but also what we're seeing is uh you know when we use this neuromorphic chip it's learning at the edge so right i, I kind of mentioned yeah. that continuous learning that ad those adaptive controls we're able to get 50% uh, fewer errors and 48% improvement on energy efficiency 
in these robotic arms. So we're doing it, uh, we're doing the experiment actually with um, Open University of Israel and uh, trying this out on pediatric wheelchairs. So we can help kids, um, you know, be, uh, be more mobile and, and more uh, effective. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, so the, as you mentioned, it's rapid learning, uh, adaptive processing, low latency, energy efficiency. We had ARK Invest on our show a few weeks ago, and they talked about why they believe Tesla is potentially four years ahead of their competition. Obviously, the innovation in lithium batteries, they moved away from NVIDIA and building their own purpose AI chip because of the need for edge computing, rapid analysis, and getting to you know levels three, four, five autonomy in the, in the near future. So do you believe like companies like Tesla, for example, EV autonomous sector will be one of the leading adopters of this brain-like uh, AI capabilities because it's really core to what they yeah. need to innovate in order to deliver the promise of, for example, autonomous, autonomous vehicles? Yeah, we, we think it's absolutely, it, it, you know, it's, it's still in experimental phase, um, but we think it has the potential to, to really be game changing. And that, that's why we're, you know, kind of testing out in our labs and seeing, you know, can we get, you know, good enough results uh, to, to, to allow for that energy efficiency, right? And the lowering of costs. That's amazing. That, yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just one and thing then, that blows our mind here. No, no, I'm just saying that's just one thing that blows our minds today. here. Um, you also have this immersive collaborative platform, ICP. Let's talk yeah. about that because you're putting together a series of different texts of, well, tech stacks, technologies, and experiences all in the one. And that's also very powerful. Is, it, is this like a yeah. digital twin of Accenture? Is that, are you building, like, you know, Professor, really Professor know Galloway talked <laughs> about moving away from offices. It feels like Accenture's yeah. decided to, we're just going to build a digital twin of our presence. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. how much do you enjoy being on a Zoom call? Right, it's not Ugh, no. super interactive. It's, this is the only video experience that I really enjoy. Yeah. That's <laughs> exactly, exactly one hour a week. Um, and the, you know, there there are there are lots of companies exploring this. Right, how, you know, how do you create the digital twin? Uh, we have built our own platform, and it's not you know it's not a full product suite that we're out there selling, but but we built it as kind of an accelerator and a demonstrator to show what it could be like to really create a very high touch, very high end immersive environment. Hmm. So one of the locations we've scanned in is our San Francisco hub. Um, and you know, Ray, you've been there. Uh, so I'll invite you it. to make a tour and you know, see, but every time I see it, I will tell you, I'm like, oh, home, you know, it's, it's like going back to the office. Um, and it really, it allows our people and our clients to come together um, and, you know, be in a physical space in a virtual way. So, you know, we, we were already exploring this before the pandemic hit. And obviously, you know, th this all got accelerated, um, you know, when we wanted to be able to, to have that kind of, you know, virtual way of connecting. But what I will say is, it's really interesting then to start to push the boundaries. And, and where I find the, the uniqueness is like, how do we start to blend as we go back? The hybrid of you know physicality yeah. and oh these virtual spaces, right? And and how do we do things? You know, how, you know, we're maybe we're together in a space, and then we go into a virtual environment um, that you know we, we go to the Alps, right? And we have a serene moment, um, and you know you can create 
spaces and experiences that can't happen in the real world. And then you can also, you know, again, create that digital twin of the real world to give people that that connection. So now everyone doesn't all have to be there. Some people can be there. And what does that mix look like? Because I don't think we're going back to the old, old way. I think it's going to be a hybrid. And so we're, we're exploring of, you know, what does that look like? And then, you know, how do we use AI to make those avatars more real, right? Make it a realistic version of you, right? Or, a, you know, a version of a, a character and, you know, how do your normal movements translate into that, you know, kind of character's movements? Uh, there's, there's just so much to explore. And then the, like the full immersive experience with haptics, uh, olfactory, mm. I mean, think about designing new products, yeah, right? No, if you want to have a digital twin of a product, you know, again, back to this new way of innovating, we want to build the stuff now. We want to try it out now. We want to get yeah. that market evaluation Sweet. now. Sweet. Can we use a, you know, you, you want to taste test a, a new drink or a new snack. Yeah. Let's, let's bring it in VR before you build a real product. Ray, is it just me or Mary just feels like Mary loves her job? I can just, <laughs> I can just tell. I've, I've never had somebody have a smile from ear to ear the whole time they're describing their work, which is pretty cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Can you blame me? <laughs> no, no. As a technologist, as, got the coolest no, job. absolutely. So. I'm just worried Ray's going to replace me with an avatar <laughs> to disrupt in the near future. Other than that, no, there's no replacement <laughs> for humans yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's no replacement. No replacement. So, especially you, yeah. okay. Thank you. <laughs> so, hey, one last part. I mean, you, you've got the ventures part, and that's really cool. And you know, what are you seeing there? Is there is enterprise tech ventures? Are they are they back full force, or are we kind of at a stall? Um, are you seeing that market pick up? So, yeah, I mean, we we are full force. Um, you know, we we brought in a, a new lead for ventures, uh, Tom Looneyboss. He's a serial entrepreneur. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, the view is, you know, especially with Accenture, you know, we, we should be looking out ahead, not just predicting what's coming, but shaping what's coming, right? Yes. The whole notion of shaping the future. Yep. You know, we have the ability to make markets. And I, and I think more and more, you know, companies like Accenture and our clients are, are really saying, you know, how do we create the ecosystem? How do we create the investment that's going to be the next disruptor, right? How do we invest in the next round of things? And, and so I, you know, I, I think, I think it's back. I think it's critical. It's essential, you know, if you want to be out and head and continue that leapfrog and the digital, you know, the growing the digital divide. I'm going to have to send her a copy of my next book. Hmm. <laughs> there's a lot in there. Yeah, right. No, but no, it's great. No, we actually think there's a there's a market for companies that are three million ARR and below, and and really trying to get them from you know startup to to the right level. And I think a lot yeah. of companies are looking at that space. So this is wonderful. Well, we're here with Mary Hamilton at Accenture. She runs a big portfolio of innovation, innovation and labs. Um, she is the managing director there. Um, if you're looking at ventures, labs, innovation, and of course, everything else and in between. So you can follow her on Twitter at Mary Q Contrary, uh, and you can follow her there for all the latest insights of innovation and, of course, what's going on at Accenture. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank, Thank you, Mary. You. You're terrific. Thank you. Okay, are we are our minds blown yet? <laughs> wow. Get your popcorn, put on your seatbelt because uh, we're not slowing down. Our next guest. Martin Lindstrom is a business and culture transformation and consumer branding expert 
and a best-selling author of Ministry of Common Sense. What a great book. We're going to talk about the book in our, in our segment. As one of the world's leading consultant, Martin's ostensibly hired by organizations to create or fix brands. Uh, Time Magazine named Martin one of the world's 100 most influential people. We've interviewed almost 700 guests. You're our first Time Magazine 100 most influential <laughs> guests. <Yeah, man. laughs> for, the, for the last six years, Thinkers 50 has listed Martin among the world's top business thinkers. Martin is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of seven books. I couldn't hold all seven. I apologize. Translated into more than 50 languages and published in more than 70 countries. In Martin's much-anticipated new book, The Ministry of Common Sense, he shows how companies can pinpoint their bureaucratic bottlenecks and invisible red tape to unlock innovation, to create amazing culture, and most importantly, save money, which, which every company is trying to figure out during this new normal. Martin is a great follow on Twitter at Martin Lindstrom, M-A-R-T-I-N-L-I-N-D-S-T-R-O-M. Welcome, Martin, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Valor. What an amazing introduction. You made me blush there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you. Hey, Martin, we just talked about a little bit of common sense in our first uh, guest. Uh, we've been talking about what's the lack of common sense going on. Like, what's going on? Like, why don't we have any common sense? Why have we thrown all that out the window? Like, are we I don't know acting what on emotion, not acting on logic? Crazy. Like, what is this? You know? It is crazy. I mean, the other day I was jumping on a plane and I you know I took a seat and they've introduced a whole new format of entertainment on board on these planes, which is crazy. It is called a contact tracing form. And if you haven't seen those before, they have all sorts of different interesting questions. Now, here's the first question. The question was, have you been in close proximity with anyone you know within the last 12 hours? Tick yes. So, of course, I tick yes. Now, here's the second question, even worse. Uh, you see, when you're on planes, you don't have pens anymore. You use your smartphones, you know, all this stuff. So this clever passenger, he comes up with an idea. He, he borrows a pen from the, the purser. And this pen now walks its way through the entire plane. It ends up with me. I'm passenger number 111. And guess what the second question is? Have you touched anything anyone else have touched <laughs> within the last 12 hours? I think yes. I mean, this is common sense. It's completely out of the window. And, and I think what has happened is the more we become addicted to PowerPoint decks, <clears throat> spreadsheets, formulas, and Zoom calls, which, by the way, always last for exactly 60 minutes. And I don't know what people don't go to the toilet anymore. Have you noticed that? It's just gone, right? And we don't say hello anymore. The first thing we say is you're on mute, right? I mean, this <laughs> what's going on in our world. So I thought it was time to write a book about this thing, right, and get, a, get it back on norm, back on track once and for all, right? There's so much humor in the book. There's such a great reminder that, you know, you have to have empathy in order to have common sense. By the way, follow Martin on Twitter because he shares stories. The last one I saw was how you, an Emirates employee uh, ran with you for 45 minutes to get you on board. And what a wonderful example of yeah. empathy. And, and, and it was just a great story. Uh, and you also have amazing guests on your on, on your on your show so you advise the biggest companies biggest brands in the world so have you been able to assess the cost of bureaucratic red tape well it's businesses? a very good question i know we estimate today that and this is what's so fascinating we estimate around 
40 up to 45 percent of the time you use if you are working in a larger company, let's say a thousand people or more, is actually based on bureaucracy, uh, red tape, a stretch jacket, uh, compliance rules and regulations and guidelines, all that stuff, 45% of the time. Wow. And there's a direct correlation between the numbers of reporting layers you have, the size of the organization, and the number of markets they're operating in, and of course, how old the company is. And this is what's so fascinating. And I think you guys will, will relate a lot to this. What we've learned is, and listen to this, this is fascinating. There's a direct correlation between common sense and empathy. The more empathy an organization has, the more common sense it has. And I think the best way for me to illustrate that is, is to talk about two young kids. What's one day sitting in the dorm room, they're off their head smoking weeds, right? So they post photos, left, right, and said, the mom and dad freaks out, of course. And the kid is saying to his mate the day after, I wish we could retract that photo. Well, that became... Snapchat, as we all know today, a $50 billion company. And really the foundation of, well, the, the lesson is not here that you have to smoke weed. Don't get me wrong. Huh? I immediately saw you were But the lesson is very simple. It is they had empathy. They felt the pain with the consumer feel. They recruited like-minded people. It became a movement. It turned into a company. And then what happens? Something extraordinary happens. First of all, suddenly the lawyers come in. <laughs> then compliance come in. Then the founders are side-railed. Think about Google. And what happens is slowly this company starts to believe in itself. It, I, I tend to say it sees the world from inside out. Or rather, it starts to drink of its own Kool-Aid. It slowly put on a stretch jacket. What happens is that suddenly it drifts away from the consumer and the customer point of view. And suddenly what happens is that empathy goes down. And with that, of course, common sense disappears and is out of the window. And that is the issue. And that's the biggest problem we have right now. You're right. We've got a lot of this corporate nonsense everywhere. Um, and, you know, I mean, think about this, these corporate nonsense problems. I mean, why are they not being solved instead of just being tolerated? Exactly. Right? Exactly. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, you had Scott on the show a little bit early on today. I actually went to a hotel in his city, right? And uh, it was a couple of years ago, and I wanted to watch television, okay? So I grabbed the remote control, and I, by the way, later on stole it. Don't tell it to anyone. Here it is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so he's a remote. And listen, I tried to switch on the television, but guess what? It has six arrows going up and down. It has three numerical keypads. It has A, B, C, D, E, and F. And then on top of that, it has not one, but it has two on buttons. Not sure how it works. If you press the second one, it's actually super overnaturally on. I'm not sure. Anyway, so I watched television for around five or six minutes, right? And after five minutes, I wanted to switch off the television. Well, don't do that, please. Because this remote control doesn't have one. It has two off buttons. And when I press the first off button, the, the light in the room dimmed in kind of a sexy, moody way. Right? And when I pressed the second one, the air conditioning system switched off. But of course, the television was still running, right? So I had to jump under the table, unplug the little lamp and the minibar, and of course, the television. 
And that was really my story, except there's two lessons here. And again, Ray, don't get it wrong what I'm saying here, right? <laughs> first of all, the first Steal the lesson, remote. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Smoke weed, steal the remote. No, sorry. Go ahead. Lessons learned from Disrupt TV, oh, the new book. I'm leaving you guys. Bye. <laughs> but listen, here's what I learned. One, I blame myself. Bloody hell, I'm getting too old. I can't even use a remote control. So the consumer blames itself. The second thing, and this is, you think I'm kidding now. I'm not. This is true. I swear. Three months later, I'm sitting on a plane. Listen to this. It's crazy. I'm sitting on a plane, and I'm sitting next to this passenger. He's an engineer. So I ask him, where are you working? Guess what? He's answering. This company. Oh. So I'm sitting with a guy. It, it says, I'm sorry, I'm going to swear now. Just switch off. No, mute function. I said to him, I didn't even think about it. I said, what the fuck went wrong with you guys? And the guy, he looked at me like a deer in the headlight. He did not get the point. So I pulled out my PowerPoint presentation where I took a photo of this remote control. And I, I said to him, what is this all about? And he said, well, I tell you. And he put his engineering mood on and he said, well, listen, internally, we have a Netflix department and we have a TV department. We have a recording function department. We have a TV department. And they all had problems internally communicating. And we had fights about the real estate, as he called it, on this remote control. So one day I came up with a brilliant idea. Why don't we separate it into zones? So there is one department which is responsible for one zone and another department for another zone. Uh, and I, he said, well, listen, everything is working perfectly. And I said to him, except one thing, I don't know how to switch on the television anymore. Unbelievable. <laughs> and, and this, Unbelievable. Is issue, this is issue, right? Martin, we had uh, last week a uh, gentleman on our show who was the chief of staff for Jeff Bezos. So for a few years, he was called Jeff's shadow. And when we asked him how to, and he joined uh, uh, Amazon in 1998, so only four years after the birth of Amazon. And so he saw it grow to, you know, one of the largest companies in the world. And he said the secret was we work backwards at yeah. Amazon. When we develop a feature or a product or a service, we start with the customer in mm -hmm. mind and the experience of the customer. And we design literally backwards to what we need to bring to market which is a, 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 your stories are a beautiful example of not doing that, not having the common sense to say, it shouldn't take 20 seconds for someone to figure out how to turn on or turn off a TV. So I read when nine out of, nine out of 10 times, regardless of the project that you're coming into, designing a logo, designing a website, redesigning a brand, you find lack of common sense. You find blind spots, cultural issues, so I'm a CEO and, and, and you're having this difficult discussion with me now explaining the root cause of my, why my company is not growing. Give us some examples of you know, how you restore common sense in companies when they clearly have a blind spot in terms of adding value to their end user. Well, well it's a good question. And I think the best way to answer that is, is to go to, to Italy. In Italy, there is a huge pharma company. They are the leader in the respiratory field. And uh, they reached out to us and they said, hey, we would like to get closer to the patients. Um, so I said, yeah, cool. When did you last spend time with the patients? And they said to me, never. I said, never? 
No, for hundred years I haven't spent time with the with the patients. So I said, let's <laughs> let's talk to the patients. And I went to compliance. I persuaded them to say yes. And we and this is a true story. We go into this home of a twenty eight year old lady, a lovely lady, and she'd had asthma her entire life. So I asked her this profound. Wow. So I think we have a little delay here. So, but uh, yeah. On question. Yeah, you hear that? So she tells me this crazy story about how when she was a kid, she was teased in school. She had no friends. In mm -hmm. fact, she was called a disgrace for human mankind when she was invited to parties. I mean, that was the situation she was in. It was horrible. And I looked mm -hmm. at her and I said, listen, when I look at you today, you, you obviously have a lot of self-confidence. What changed? And she grabbed her handbag, and out of her handbag, she pulled a straw. And she said, this is the secret. I said, what do you mean? She said, I always give this straw to my friends, new friends or colleagues, and I ask them to hold themselves with a nose and breathe through the straw for a minute. And then they feel the sense of empathy. Wow. And through empathy, wow. we actually connect. So I took this idea, and I shared it with the board. I had the entire board gather for a session, we switched off the light, we had a voice, a heavy voice going through the speaker with heavy breathing, <gasps> that type of breathing sound. And then I had everyone you know, use this straw and use it for one minute. And after mm -hmm. 30 seconds, one guy, he spits out the straw and he said, this is ridiculous, no one can live like this. And I looked him in the eyes and I said to him, except one thing, this is how your patients feel every day of their entire life. Wow. And they're paying your salary. And if you could hear a penny drop on the floor, you would have heard it. It was almost like the, with a Eureka moment going on. From that moment on, the comedy started to employ people differently. We created an empathy kit where people had a straw, had to breathe and feel like an asthma patient. Wow. We had R&D behaving like they had respiratory field issues when they were in the field. We did all this stuff and the entire comedy changed. And here's what's so fascinating. As we reinfused empathy into the company, common sense joined and started oh, wow. to increase. And so long story short, you ask me, what do I do? I think one of the tricks I've learned over the years is to make people feel things. You don't feel things through a spreadsheet where it says 22.9% feel this and that, right? But you, when you try it yourself, you feel it. And I think a good example of that was this is crazy. So, so, so about a year ago, I am, um, you know, I was asked by one of the largest credit card players in the world to fix their customer issues. They said, "Hey, we want to have really happy customers." I say, fantastic. Let's just start with the low hanging fruit. So, I said, "Where is the biggest problem?" And that's always what I do. Look at the biggest problem. Well, the biggest problem actually with customer satisfaction with credit cards is when you lose it. Have you tried it? You lose your credit card. You're in New York City. In fact, you live in Los Angeles, and they will call you, and after you hear everything, they will tell you you'll get it by the mail in three weeks from now on. And, of course, you screwed in the meantime. So I said to them, let's fix it. So here's what we did. They said, no, we can't do it. It's impossible. That's probably not so important, whatever. So I set up a game. They didn't know anything about it. I worked with the risk department. I worked with... HR, I worked with all the legal functions, and I had all the executives joining me for a dinner. And we went in our car, in a taxi, and when we arrived, I asked them, you know, who can pay? 
And one guy, he said, of course, they had only a credit card. I'll pay, right? And he put up the most fancy credit card you've ever seen in your life, right? With his name engraved in gold and whatever. He put it out and it was rejected. So the other guy said, ha ha, you know, <laughs> I'll, yeah, obviously you don't pay your bill. I'll take my credit card. It was rejected. And they went on the phone. And of course, they went through the entire repertoire of elevator music. They had number one, two, three, four. This call was recorded for quality purposes. So it came on top. That's one of the best you know, lyrics in the, in, in the world. And after that, after 20 minutes, they were still sitting there. So I sneaked out of the taxi. I sat in there with the CEO uh, waiting for these four executives. And after around 50 minutes, they came. They were 35 minutes late at this stage. And they said, this is the most ridiculous thing. We have to fix it straight away. And I remember the CEO, he looked at me and he just did this. And then we fixed it. And here's what we did. Very simple. Because what we've learned is you always have to work with what I call a 90-day intervention. A small bite-sized change you implement and which immediately can be turned around to a solution. And, and here's the very simple thing. 9% of everyone owning a credit card will lose their credit card. So we created a small pilot. Very simple. When you sign up, we say to people, hey, do you want an insurance? It costs $29 a year. Now, if people say yes, we'll give them three things. One, we'll deliver a card within 24 hours. Two, we'll wire money through PayPal, $1,000. And three, we'll block all the other cards and, and fix that issue for them. Now, guess what? 62% signed up for that service. Wow. Those people not signing up for that service, wow. they all said to us, do you know what? I don't need that. I'm actually fine with waiting for three three weeks to get my credit card. Fine with me. And the other ones, they actually got a service, and today they earn money on that service, and customers are more happy. And this is, in the end of the day, for me, common sense. The problem is common sense is not that common. Right? Unbelievable. New business awesome. model innovation and improved customer experience all in one. And I got to yeah. tell you, Martin, Apparently, you have to be an amazing storyteller to make it to the time 100 most influential <laughs> because you are an amazing storyteller. Go ahead, Ray. Sorry. I no, just no, to we're say so that. out of time, and I can't believe we've been <laughs> boom, 20 minutes, all gone. We are here with that Martin felt Lindstrom. Like a minute. That felt like one minute. I wow. know. Martin wow. Lindstrom, author of the Ministry of Common Sense. You can follow him on Twitter at Martin Lindstrom. More importantly, you can Follow his tweets. Definitely something to read. Uh, definitely to watch. And it'll definitely make you smile. Martin, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, we'll Thanks see you in the back uh, in the green room. Take care. You were terrific. Wow. Wow, Ray. Oh, my God. From <laughs> Professor Galloway to Mary to Martin. I don't know. <laughs> I will have to decompress for a few hours. Anybody watching this, this on their Peloton? <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. yeah. Well, you burn more brain calories than uh, actual calories. Exactly. That was, that was, uh, well, we're one shy of 700 interviews. So what a great way to get to that mile marker. Um, we just conducted our 697th, 98th and 99th interview, Ray. Uh, episode 229 is next week. Gee, I need to pause. I can't believe I'm talking about next week. There's so much goodness that just was dumped on us for the past hour. Uh, Teresa Barriara, a global CMO of a publicist sapient. Perry Hewitt, first ever chief digital officer uh, in the university sector. She's currently digital product strategy consultant at Bloomberg Philanthropies. And Raja Rajamanar, CMO of MasterCard. We have to tell them that story. Um, so we have, uh, <laughs> yeah. In fact, in fact, Perry was a CMO before this current role. So we actually have three extraordinary CMOs on our show next week. So um, 
Uh, please make sure you tune in next week if you're uh, interested in, in digital and pioneering marketing. And Roger just wrote a fantastic book that we're going we're gonna to cover next week. Your thoughts, closing remarks on, on the past hour. We've just seen the best of innovation and where the future's headed. Uh, I don't know how we are ever going to top this show, <laughs> but but uh, yeah. you know, if you've got a great guest, great idea, let us know. Um, you can always reach us here at Disrupt TV Show on Twitter, uh, either direct message Vala or myself. If you've got a guest suggestion, and more importantly, thank you for making this one of the top tech and beyond tech enterprise shows there are uh, in the world. So uh, it's Friday. It's eleven a.m. 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, more importantly, catch us on Disrupt TV every Friday. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye.